Hey friends, we're going to be reading from Matthew's Gospel uh, this afternoon, so if you'd like to uh, bring that up. Uh, it's chapter 11, not chapter 1. Um, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyr and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyr and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable of the, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and re- revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gr- gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest from your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm going to pray quickly and then invite Paddy to come up and talk to us. Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to um, be in public meetings today and to hear from it. I pray that you would speak through Paddy um, faithfully and that he would reveal um, your will for us. Amen. Okay, uh, welcome to public meetings, particularly in the uh, two weeks after the festival. Uh, can I um, echo uh, Sam's encouragement? Can I echo Sam's encouragement that uh, if you're interested in being better equipped to talk to your friends about Jesus, that you take up the opportunity of doing one of these courses. Um, if you'd like to come and do Engaging the World on Thursdays at 9 or Thursdays at 3, you'll end up spending time with me. For those of you, that's an attractive thing. Um, but all of the senior staff will be running the courses will do a fantastic job. So I encourage you to sign up for that. Uh, normally, uh, during PMs, you'll, if you know me, you've been PMs before I get you to do something interactive. So, you know, why break your tradition? So here's what I want you to try and do today. This is a non-obligation thing. I want you to post something on Facebook. Okay? Do you think you can do that? So at some point, you're going to need an internet-connected device. There's not a lot of movement going on. You've got more left. Like you need a phone or a laptop or something like that. What I'd like you to do, uh, maybe in the next 10 or 15 minutes, is post something about how worth it it is to be a public meeting. Now, you can take a photo of somebody. Please don't take photos of me. I was just over embarrassing. Uh, you can take a photo of the outline. You can take a photo of Macadamia's shirt if you're sitting behind you. Uh, and I want you to say with your caption, either stick it on your wall or post it on the public meeting Facebook page. If you don't know that, then uh, go to Lauren's. Where's Lauren here? Lauren walked into the room. She's gone again. Uh, what I'd like you to try and do for the next 10 or 15 minutes is if you're thinking here about public meetings, post something about how worth it is for you to be a public meetings. A photo, a, a caption, and then um, as it starts coming up on your feed after public meetings, you might like to share that at this point. Okay? Because one of the things that we strongly believe here in the EU is that it is worth it to set aside an hour in your week to come and listen to the Bible being taught publicly. And I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here. But there's actually hundreds of others who, unlike you, even in the last half an hour, have gone, I'm just not sure if it's worth it today to be at public meetings. And I want to give them a reminder and a gentle rebuke from you guys because you're here that actually it is worth it being at public meetings. So it doesn't, please don't say anything too crazy or corny, but if that suits your personality and your Facebook feed, then go for it. So I'm going to give you permission in the next 10 minutes, if you're looking down at your phone, I'm assuming you've either got the text in front of you, or you're posting something sensible about public meetings. Uh, a photo always gets a greater share with Facebook. Um, stick it on Instagram if you like, but I won't be able to see it. Uh, so stick something on Facebook. Is that right? Why is public meetings worth it for you? Maybe something that comes out of the talk in the next 10 or 15 minutes. You're here and you've set aside an hour to do so out of your busy schedule. Okay? So that's a little interactive exercise for today. Uh, over the next three weeks, we're spending some time in Matthew's Gospel. Today we're doing chapter 11, next week will be chapter 13, and next week chapter 15. If you'd like to know why I've chosen those three chapters, come and talk to me over afternoon tea. Someone said, why don't you just pick prime numbers, you know, 11, 13, and 17? Uh, I said, I'll just pick 11, 13, and 15. So you can come and talk to me about that. And we're going to be spending some time working through this issue of whether or not it's worth following Jesus. So this week, we're looking at the question of, is it worth following Jesus? The next week, is Jesus worth listening to? And in the third week, we're going to look at Matthew 15, we're going to deal with the topic of, is Jesus worth trusting? We'll be very helpful if you've got a copy of the text open in front of you. Um, we'll flip through this a little bit on the screen. 
Um, and I'll try and keep the screen up to where we're up to, but if you've got a copy of the text, that would be very helpful. One more prayer for us as we look at the Word of God together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the privilege that you give us as the EU to be able to meet publicly on campus. We thank you for the provision of the lecture theatre. We thank you that we can read your word in our mother tongue. We thank you, Father, for the wonderful opportunity that it is to together open your word to have you speak to us through it. Father, we pray now, please, that you would give us insight and understanding into your word. Father, that as your people, we might be convicted of what it says and that we might live lives that bring glory to Jesus as we follow him. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, one of the questions that we're going to try and look at over the next couple of weeks is the claim that Christians have been making for thousands of years in which it's just a tradition in which we now stand as Christians. And the claim that Christians have been making for this time is that Jesus is someone worth following. Jesus is someone who is worth following. Now, like any decision that's made as to whether or not something is worth it, we have to try and weigh, to some extent, the positives and the negatives. The pluses, the minuses, the cost or the benefit, the risk or the reward. What's it going to cost me? And what am I going to get out of it? And over these next three weeks, we're going to be looking at this man, Jesus, the claims that he makes, and whether or not it's worth it to be one of his followers. So today, in Matthew chapter 11, we come at the sort of the beginning part of Jesus' public ministry. He spent some time teaching publicly in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. He's now started uh, selecting his disciples earlier on in chapter 10 where he's appointed them, um, his immediate followers, the disciples or the apostles. And now, as he's going out to speak publicly about what he's come to do, we turn now to chapter 11. In many respects, this particular first half of chapter 11 is what you might call a tale of two prophets, both John and Jesus. And Matthew chapter 11, as we have it before us, I think is an intriguing understanding of these two prophetic figures. The chapter opens, as you see there in verse 2, with the question that comes from John, directed towards Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, the immediate context here is John has been placed into prison by Herod, essentially ending his public ministry of baptism in the wilderness and calling people to repentance. And now John is wondering whether or not Jesus is worth it. This is the one who I was pointing people to. Is he still worth it? What is it that's prompted John's question? Perhaps it's the public ministry of Jesus that we see there in verse 2. Jesus is gaining a greater and greater reputation. Presumably the deeds that Jesus has been doing has raised questions about his identity. And so John requests that his own followers, his own disciples, go and visit Jesus and ask for some confirmation of this. The question that John asks, I take it, is sometimes our question, is it not? Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Is it really worth sticking with you? Particularly when times get tough. And arguably it couldn't have got any tougher for John. He's now in prison. Now Jesus' answer to John is a direct answer, but phrased with an Old Testament expectation. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 4. Jesus answered them directly to John's disciples who would go back and give John the answer. 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus' answer here in verse 4 points out a number of deeds that he himself has been doing, which Matthew's recorded for us. All of which could have been verified by John's disciples, particularly if they'd spent time with Jesus, if they perhaps talked with Jesus' disciples, or asked the others, the crowd who have been following, is this actually what's taking place? In fact, Jesus actually does say to John's disciples, do you see there in verse 4, report what you see and hear. Be eyewitnesses for John to the deeds that Jesus is doing. For John's sake, what answer do you think John is expecting when from his prison cell he sends his disciples to ask this question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This is John who earlier on in Matthew's narrative in chapter 3 verse 11, while baptising Jesus with water, while baptising people with water actually, points to one who is to come who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. And at the point of baptising Jesus himself, hears the voice from heaven as was heard by all, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. John wants to know, has Jesus made good on what John's experience of Jesus is? So Jesus now instructs those whom John would trust most, his own disciples, to be eyewitnesses about what they've seen and heard about what Jesus is and what he is doing. Look at the things that Jesus mentions and let me see if I can point you back to where they've already taken place. The blind receiving their sight. If you're taking notes, Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 29, Jesus restores the sight of the blind man. The lame walking, just earlier in chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. The lepers of chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, that are cleansed. The deaf hearing. No past reference, I'll come back again. The dead being raised. Chapter 9, verse 24. The little girl who Jesus brings back to life. Good news being preached to the poor. How can you go past the Sermon on the Mount? And the blessings to those who are not offended by Jesus. Remember the blessings in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. See, Jesus mentions these things as things that he's been doing. Why the lack of the reference to the deaf hearing? Well, we don't have it recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel. It may have been that it actually took place and Matthew is recalling it, but it was not recorded earlier for us in the narrative. It will have been recorded in parallel narratives that up until this point in the ministry, Jesus had actually brought the dead to hear. Also, just in case you're wondering, although Jesus doesn't mention it, the sick have been healed, chapter 8, verse 13, verse 14, chapter 9, verse 22 and 9, 33, and he's cast demons out of people, chapter 8, verse 28. This is a pretty impressive list. Is this guy worth following? He can restore sight to the blind, he can make the lame walk, he can cleanse lepers, he can make the dead hear, he can raise the dead, he can preach. Ought that to be enough? For John, shouldn't that be just an impressive sort of checkbox? John's sitting there, oh, I wonder if he's done this and done this. And, and the question for us is, would, not, would this not be a person worth following? 
I suspect if someone appeared today and demonstrated they could do all of these things, thousands would flock to them. Many would not believe. Many would be sceptical. But I suspect this is the sort of person, if they could perform such startling and miraculous acts, that thousands of people would follow up. But the way in which Jesus frames the response to John is not just a checklist of, look how good I am. It's actually framed with an Old Testament expectation. And so we need to turn first to Isaiah 35. You've got a Bible in front of you. Isaiah 35, my apologies for not having a PowerPoint. We'll see if we can get that done for tomorrow, so come back tomorrow or Thursday. In Isaiah 35, in the early part of Isaiah 35, we read this, verses 3 following. This is the prophecy that's made of one who is to come. In Isaiah 35, verse 3, we read, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For water break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. The prophecy made in Isaiah's time is that on this great day when God, Yahweh of Israel, arrives, not only will he come with vengeance, he will come to deliver and look at all of these things that will take place. Very much the things that Jesus has done. Turn forward a few chapters, or 30 chapters in Isaiah, we're going to Isaiah chapter 61. This is what Isaiah says later on in Isaiah chapter 61. Again, a prophecy directed towards the one who is to come. Where in Isaiah 61 we read this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The two big ideas here in Isaiah 61, the great year of jubilee, the great year of release, the binding up of the brokenhearted, the proclamation of liberty to those who are under captivity. But notice also, consistent with Isaiah 35, the day of vengeance, the day of judgment against the enemies of Israel, both a day of great release and joy, but at the same time a terrible, terrible day of vengeance, judgment for those who are the enemy of God. This, friends, is the background with which Jesus gives his answer to John. Jesus asks John to consider the deeds he has been doing And it should raise, rightly in John's mind, this question. Is Jesus the Messiah predicted in Isaiah chapter 35, 61 and other places? And Jesus' answer ought to leave John in little doubt. And I think here we get a glimpse of why John might be asking the question. Are you the one who was to come? Or shall we look for another? You see there in Isaiah 61, the promise is made 
that the one who fulfills this promise will proclaim liberty to the captives. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. Just the situation that John finds himself in, now locked up under Herod's captivity. But the question we ought to ask here, I think, is what is the release that is being offered? Is it freedom from physical captivity? Is it a release from another form of slavery? Here, having given John's disciple their reply, and they return to tell John the news, Jesus then goes on to speak to the crowd in verse 7 following, to help them understand the role of the prophet. And particularly, Jesus speaks very clearly of John, who he is, but he also gives us an echo of his own prophetic ministry for those who have ears to hear. So let's spend some time looking at it from verse 7. Follow. Notice how John... Well, John was initially described in Matthew chapter 3 when we read this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's head, a leather belt around his waist. His food with locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now that's the immediate context of what we know of John. How then does Jesus describe him in this section in verses 7 following? Three particular ways in which I think Jesus describes John. Firstly, he describes him as a prophet. Secondly, he describes him as more than a prophet. And thirdly, he describes him as the Elijah who is to come. So let's look at each of these in turn. In verses 7 to 9, we see that Jesus recognises that the people go out to see John exhibiting a prophetic ministry. Uh, Not unlike the prophets in the Old Testament, John stands in that tradition. He conducts his ministry out in the wilderness, requiring people to leave the cities and head out to him. His message was not one of compromise. Unlike the reed being swayed in the wind, John remains resolute and steadfast in his preaching and teaching. And unlike those kings and palaces who would have lived very, what many reports for us, very soft lives, comfortable lives, the life of John was anything but that. He lives in a wilderness, he eats locusts, he wears camel skin, not really a sort of a soft bloke who ran across him in the street. But notice here the question. Would this particular prophet be worth following? Would he be worth listening to? Well, thousands thought that he was because they flocked to see him. In John in Matthew chapter 3, we read, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan go out to see him. Verse 9 and 12. Jesus also recognises in describing John that he is more than a prophet. How can you be more than a prophet? Is I think the question we ought to ask. Yet Jesus says, no, he's more than a prophet. And he's more than a prophet because John is the messenger who comes before the Messiah. Uh, Jesus here quotes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, regarding the coming arrival of the Lord to his people. Jesus goes as far as saying he is one of the most significant figures. Among those born of women, no one is more significant than John. And like the pattern of the Old Testament, the prophets of God are often met with violence. 
The rulers of the day often resisted the prophetic message come from God through the prophets. And just like in the Old Testament, John now, his life is met also with violence. We read a little bit later on in Matthew chapter 14, and I'm not, well, it's a bit of a spoiler, uh, John dies by the way, uh, we won't get to that in public meetings, that Herod actually puts John to death. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, he beheads him. And you notice Matthew's commentary in this particular point. It's not that. <laughs> the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. The one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. There in verse uh, 11. What might Matthew be referring to? Uh, Here's a couple of thoughts. Firstly, does that include us? You and I, followers of Jesus, who are included in the kingdom. Is it perhaps that we know Jesus as Messiah because we live post his death and resurrection? So he's rightly identified as the Messiah who was to come. Is it perhaps also because we, we, when we speak about Jesus, are messengers attesting to Jesus as the Messiah in a way that John was unable to? Because we see the Messiah in his resurrected glory, something John was not able to do. Is it perhaps also that it's because we, unlike John, are included in the new covenant, whereas John comes as the last of the prophets under the old covenant arrangement? Thirdly, the way in which Jesus describes John is the Elijah who was to come. Jesus goes further by equating John with an Elijah figure. Much as I love to spend some time going back and reading 1 Kings and reading all about Elijah. If you've got time, go and read the narrative of Elijah. It's a fantastic, a rip-roaring story. But what we see in Elijah is one who proclaims the message of repentance and judgment to idol worshippers to the nation of Israel and the kings of the day who refused to follow Yahweh. And that's what Elijah's up against. And he was persecuted, hounded, threatened with violence. Just like Elijah, John is the one who preaches this same message of repentance. But Jesus does more than saying John is just like Elijah. Jesus says he is the Elijah who is to come. Uh, This is an echo of Malachi chapter 4, where in Malachi chapter 4 we read that prior to the coming of the day of the Lord, an Elijah figure will come and turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their children. It is arguably the last prophecy written before the arrival of the Messiah in New Testament times. In the period of about 350 years, when God was silent after speaking through Malachi and before the arrival of Jesus, this is the promise that lingers in the minds of the Israelites. Where is the Elijah figure? Because once they come, we know the imminent arrival of Yahweh will be here. Jesus is saying, for those who have ears to hear, this man John is the Elijah figure. I wonder if John ever fully realised these things from his prison cell. Did he really appreciate how significant his ministry was? Do we appreciate the significance of this man, John the Baptist? Or do we still have this sort of Sunday school image of a crazy guy running around in the desert, eating locusts and wearing camel skin? 
Friends, John is a very significant figure in the biblical narrative. Significant because he is the Elijah who prophesies the imminent coming of the Messiah. And you notice the reaction to John and Jesus from the current generation as we see there in verse 15. Oh, sorry, I'm a little bit behind. Verses 15 to 17, or verses 15 to 19. For those who have ears to hear, John is the Elijah who is to come. But notice the current generation, how they respond. There was an offer to participate, and yet it was rejected. We see it there in verses 16 to 17. It was an offer to both rejoice and to mourn. Rejoicing over the coming of the Messiah. That great day that generations of Israelites have been looking forward to. But also the opportunity to rightly mourn over the judgment that would come against those who are opposed to God. The appropriate response, actually, over those who are missing out on the joy of being included in the kingdom. And yet for the current generation, no interest whatsoever. And not just apathy, but strident rejection. Notice there in verses 18 and 19, we see the rejection of both John and Jesus, particularly by the religious leaders of the day. For John, who was calling people back to repentance and obedience to the law, he is accused of being demon-possessed because the message that John speaks cuts to the heart of the legalism that had infected the hearts of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And for Jesus, he's rejected because he is willing to associate with the marginalised, the unrighteous, but he's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because the message that Jesus speaks cuts to the heart of the self-righteousness that had infected the heart of the religious leaders and all who were influenced by them. And so here as we reflect on this section from verse 7 all the way through to the particular end of verse 19, we see that Jesus explicitly shows us who John is as a prophet. But at the same time, do you pick up the hints of parallelism between Jesus' prophetic ministry and John's ministry? As you reflect on this passage, consider the life of Jesus. He comes and spends a considerable amount of time preaching and teaching in the countryside until the latter years of his life. Jesus is firm in his convictions, resolute in his message. He comes to offer repentance and belief for the coming kingdom. Jesus, despite being a prophet, is also more than a prophet. He is both, as we will see in his death and resurrection, priest and king. Which is why I think some people, when he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am, the crowds say, I think he's Elijah. I think Jesus is the Elijah. But they miss the fact that John is the Elijah who was to come and Jesus is the Messiah. Notice also Jesus teaches consistently within the Old Testament law and the prophets. He does not put them to one side. Jesus recognises that his kingdom will not be brought about by violence. Even if the world seek to destroy Jesus through violence and his ministry. And Jesus, in the vein of the prophets of the Old Testament and just like John, goes to the cross. He is put to death by those who reject his prophetic ministry. And just like the prophets of the Old Testament, the message that Jesus declares is both one of hope and joy, but also a message of judgment. For both Jesus and John, they are rejected by the people that they go to. 
their message of repentance and the offer to join the kingdom are not taken up. And I wonder whether or not, like me, you feel the parallel today in your own life and in our society. Sometimes do you not feel the complete apathy towards what Jesus is offering as you talk to your classmates, as you talk to your family, as you talk to your friends? And sometimes when you engage in conversation, do you not also feel the strident rejection, the condescending sneers, the abuse that is sometimes hurled at Christians, maybe subtly to you personally, but also publicly to Christians when they make a stand on various issues? I suggest to you that as it was in Jesus' day, so it has been for thousands of years for Christians. And as it still is today, for those of us who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so the question we rightly ask is, is this Jesus worth following? The one who offers so much apparently, but yet is rejected by the majority, rejected by society. Sometimes if we offer to the world a good, upright morality, we are accused of being backward, bigoted, out of touch or legalistic. If we hold out the offer of welcoming the outcast, the marginalised and the destitute, we're accused of being do-gooders, hypocrites or self-interested. Do you not feel this personally? And feel for those who are doing it publicly? Friends, I take it as we see here on the lips of Jesus and as we have resonance in our own life experience, our wider expectation of society is that this is the way rebels treat their king. This is the way that's their God. This is the way the arrogant refuse to be humble. This is the way the proud rule over the humble. This is what I take it society does today. Exactly the same way they have been doing for thousands of years. And friends, this is the way that God despises. This is the way that God despises. And that's why judgment is coming. For the Lord will not put up with it. Which is why at that point in Jesus' ministry he knows these things and pronounces a message of judgment. Notice there in verse 20 following. Look at the message of judgment for those who would take their stand against God. Seen very clearly in verses 20 to 24. Jesus' judgment, perhaps surprisingly, begins with the city where he preached repentance and faith. Surely, Jesus, they'd be okay because you've gone and preached to them. Maybe you should preach judgment on those who haven't heard, who are still isolated, who are still lost. But no, Jesus says, the cities that are under judgment are those who have heard about the news of the kingdom of God and yet failed to repent. That Jesus can do mighty works in these cities does not free these cities from the judgment of God. Rather, it is only through repenting that one is free from judgment the very thing these cities had not done. The judgment that fell on Sodom and Tyre and Sidon was extreme and complete. You can go and read about it in the Old Testament. If you're after the judgment on Tyre and Sidon, Ezekiel chapter 26 to 28, are the prophecies made about them. As best as we know, Tyre was a magnificent city on the coast of the Mediterranean. The judgment came out. It was completely destroyed, wiped off the map. You can go there now. It's basically a pile of rock and that's it. There is nothing left of it. 
because of their arrogance and their rebellion against God. And yet Jesus says, if these Old Testament cities had witnessed the works that he had done in them, they would have repented. So look at the judgment that will fall on the cities where he did his works and they have failed to repent. Friends, the same judgment will come on our city, the city of Sydney. It will come on all the cities where if the works of God have been shown through his people, you and I, and the city has not repented, the judgment of God will come upon them. So is this Jesus worth following? This is the Jesus who will come and judge and do it justly. If he's worth following, then we do well to ask the question, why? And I think the answer we get is in the next section in verses 25 to 30. One of many that we'll see over the next couple of weeks. The Father's approach here in verses 25 to 30, the Father's will, the Father's desire, his intent has been to hide from those who consider themselves wise and reveal to those who consider themselves childlike his great manifold wisdom in the person of the Lord Jesus. For those who assume they know how the Father will act and have assumed they know the Father already and assume that they are already knowledgeable, the Father hides his plans from them. But for those who come as a child and listen to the Father, to learn from the Father, to learn in a state of humility as to how he will act, to them the Father reveals his plans. And he does so in verse 27 in the person of Jesus. For all things have been handed over to the Son by the Father. And so if you desire to know the Father, the one who made you, the one who sustains you, then you can only do so, friends, by the gracious revelation of the Son towards you. Such is the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son and us. And so what is on offer here for those who will accept the offer that the Son makes? Well, in verses 28 to 29, we see that for all who are weighed down with the worries and the anxieties of the world, Jesus offers rest. Are you weighed down with the anxieties and the worries of the world? Where you will eat, where you will live, how you will pass your degree, what job you get, what the future holds. Do these things cause you worry and anxiety? Friends, Jesus offers relief and release from these things. The illustration of taking on Jesus' yoke is an offer to be bound with him. Uh, the yoke in an agrarian society, normally it's a fairly heavy piece of wood that you put over the front, normally of two or multiple animals, it binds them together so that they would together head in the same direction. They would be united in their work and their endeavours. Friends, this is the offer that Jesus makes. Jesus says, be united to me in my endeavours. Learn from Jesus in humility. This is what Jesus offers. Not violence, not aggression. He offers gentleness, humility, lowliness. And these are the things that will bring rest for our souls. Not continual striving and worrying. These are the things that will bring perspective in the difficulties of our daily and weekly existence. And lest we think that carrying the share of the yoke will crush us, 
Jesus reminds us that his yoke is easy for us. And for us, it is light. Because for him, the yoke was extraordinarily heavy and extremely difficult. For he goes to the cross to carry the weight that we could not. The weight of rebellion, the weight of sin, the weight of violence, the weight of self-righteousness, the weight of shame, the weight of all of our worries and anxieties. He, friends, is the one who takes the full weight of the yoke that binds us with him. He carries us the whole way, which means being bound to him and united to him means we do not have to carry the load ourselves. Friends, Jesus' burden is light. Not because the burden itself is light, but because he carries it all for us. This, friends, is a Jesus worth following. Look forward to seeing you in the next couple of weeks. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you went to the cross, that you carried the burden that we could not. Father, we ask, please, that you would help us rightly recognise him, that you would help us to rightly recognise that you are the Messiah, that you are the one worth following. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks, Paddy. There's time for one question. For me or for you? For you.